Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Our techno-scientific world is a historical novelty, and it's complex. We humans did not evolve for this new world. We've not experienced the magnitude of its consequences, unintended or otherwise, and their harms. I'm talking about things like environmental toxins, industrial pollutants, gamma radiation, and stuff like that. But I'm also talking about things we can sense, but can't really get an accurate handle on, like mold or noise pollution. So while we wait for our senses to catch up to the new reality, we can use technology to help us sense those unsensible things in our environment, right? so fast. As you'll hear in this episode, although the tech is there, it's difficult to implement. And so in this episode, I talk with Guy Siez from Fab Lab Barcelona about a project they're piloting called Making Sense. As you'll learn in this episode, it's not the tech that's the problem. It's our ability to put it to use in a way that's meaningful and lasting. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to uh, to talk with me from 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 the Working Together podcast. Um, I'm really uh, really interested in in what you guys have been up to, uh, and like I do with all of the interviews that I do, um, I try to I try to get a sense right off the beginning you know, what, uh, what your story is behind this, like how you've come to this work. Um, and even if you want to talk beyond yourself, just about the organization, uh, and how you've come to, uh, come to the work that you're doing with making sense. Um, uh, that'd be, that'd be really great to kind of get a, get a picture about what led you to today and what led you to now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you for asking me to be to be on this. Really good. Um, we're constantly trying to get the stuff that we're doing with making sense in the Fab Labs out more and more. So it's really it's really great that there's people out there interested in hearing about this. Um, my story with uh, with Fab Lab and making sense and all these citizen science projects is perhaps a slightly unconventional one. Um, I was actually I used to work in advertising and production. In, in London and in New York and LA and I used to be big into like big brand stuff um, and then I kind of got a bit tired of it and I went on a sabbatical while I was on a sabbatical I met these people just totally by chance in the other side of the world in Indonesia and they and they started talking to me about all of these really cool things I've always been interested in and I didn't really know knew there was a thing around them you know we're talking about like Internet of Things, we're talking about sensing, about citizen science, about, you know, projects for positive social change, you know? And where, all I was doing at the time was, like, 
selling things to people that they didn't really need. Right. And so that to me kind of felt like a much better use of my sabbatical. Then suddenly, you know, and I worked with big tech companies, you know, like the Googles and the Apples of the world. And suddenly there was this thing that were mentioned to me, like these fab labs that I'd never even heard about. And so to me, like those doors opening up left, right, and center, I was like, this is amazing. So I came over to Barcelona and I joined um, what's called the Fab Lab Barcelona, and which lives inside of the Institute of Advanced Architecture in Catalonia. Hmm. And the Fab Lab is basically, it's a makerspace, a place where you can build almost anything. That's, that's the tagline of the Fab Labs. And in the Fab Lab, you'll find, you know, your 3D printers, your laser cutters, your mills, your any kind of machinery. And the idea is that, you know, people come together to make cool prototypes for, for technology that they want to see out there in a the world or for products that they want to make. Um, and so a lot of the focus on this Fab Lab in particular is about the cities of the future. Right? And so hmm. we have a strategy for cities of the future here in Barcelona that's called the Fab City, you know, contributive cities. Um, and the idea is that you know, we take on that smart city uh, idea that's been sold to us, right? that's almost quite Orwellian, quite surveillance mode and automated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and, and we, we flip it on the other side, right? Um, and we, we make a smart city that's made from smart citizens, you know, people that are empowered by you know, accessible technology and, and digital maker practices to contribute solutions citywide problems that benefit their daily life, right? Not just things that, you know, the council thinks that will be useful to you, um, but things that you, you generally need that might never have occurred to um, the powers that be. And so it's, it's, really, it's a really interesting cross-section, um, this fab lab of, of just kind of the hacking kind of mentality of just, Putting stuff together, but also with the purpose of a bigger purpose beyond technology and, and, and how we will be living in the next 50, 100 years. Um, and so this one specifically because it's inside of the Institute of Advanced mm. Architecture, that's a research stream that all students are thinking about, like what is the advanced architecture of the world? And we, being a part of that, have all of these really cool influences about how citizens can come together to use technology a better a better future now that is um that is very very tempered with kind of view on kind of solutionism you know the classic silicon valley mentality of just like oh we just throw technology at that and fix fix water you know like like mm -hmm. what do you mean by that so like we have to like really figure out how you know what are the what are the social dynamics and constructs have to be in place for things to really take off develop you know and how do how do we get past technological novelty and, and so that's the work that's happening at the fab lab and the reason i'm here is because one of the things that really gets left behind a lot when we're talking about emergent technology and about all this kind of stuff is the communication of this technology you know um it, it tends to be made by engineers for, for everyone but really ends up landing on the hands of other engineers or academics uh, because it's not talked about in a vernacular that people really get excited mm. by or like care, care about really. Um, and I think that's, that's what, when, when I met these guys out on my sabbatical, they talked to me about projects they were thinking about putting together called Making Sense, which to me was just right up my street. Is how do we make sense 
of all of this stuff, right? How do we make sense of data? How do we make sense of our environment? How do we do it? Not for scientists, like for us, you know? Um, and once we figure that out, how can we scale that? You know? And so that's, um, that, that's kind of the stuff that we're doing here. You know, we, we deal with lots of projects, a lot of it about sensing, because one of the products that we've created at the Fab Lab Barcelona is a, a sensor kit platform called the Smart Citizen Kit. Um, and the Smart Citizen Kit is basically a, like an Arduino on steroids. It's like basically it's an electronic board with a ton of sensors. Um, and they can measure like mostly anything, you know, like from temperature to light to humidity to air pollution, mm. to, you, know, you, you name it. And so we, we created this open source sensor. So anyone like you in Canada can go to your local fab lab, download the plans and make one yourself. Mm. Um, or you can just buy one. We'll assemble it for you when we ship it. And then uh, there's a platform that's also open source. You can basically appropriate any of the data for anything that you're doing, contributes. Data. You can fork the whole platform if you like. We're basically putting together um, kind of tools for people to start making sense of um, their environment, right? Um, but there are there are still it, it's still in very early stages mm. of uh, of this kind of movement. You know, there's some people that are kind of super into it. They're like, to them, it's been going on forever. The reality is, to the outside world, really. It is this very nascent technology. You know, it still goes wrong a lot of the time. It still has um, scaling issues. Mm-hmm. So with with making sense, we're trying to look into some of those, right? Um, I think I think it's very clear by now um, that there is there is this turn um, to making things our, ourselves, right? The rise of three D printers, and now you mm-hmm. can buy any of them in a supermarket. Um, you know, we've got open data. Um, you've got all these kind of things. And then so lately there's been this turn to citizen science, right? Mm. Especially when you couple, you couple it with um, kind of, I don't want to say lack of trust in official kind of capabilities, but like maybe perhaps thinking that the government or the powers that be aren't doing enough on, on your behalf. Right. People are like, you know what? There's technology available to me that I can kind of do something about this. You know, like an example, like a, a bunch of examples. This one of them, obviously, the the, the most the striking one is the uh, notification that within hours of Trump taking on the White House, the climate change had been removed from the the EPA side or whatever it was, right? And it's like people suddenly <laughs> yeah. go, "Wait a minute! Like, do I trust this government to tell me the right thing right now?" Um, you know, and you know, not not being partisan at all, but like suddenly people start thinking, "Wait a minute! Like, mm-hmm. what if I take my own measurements and like compare them to this?" Yeah. Then sometimes you have the issue of just capability, you know, like granularity. One of the biggest examples of this was um, SafeCast in uh, Japan. So do you remember a, a few years ago that there was a, kind of a tsunami? I think it was a tsunami in Japan. Yes, and there was yeah. a nuclear meltdown, mm-hmm. right? And so suddenly you have all this radioactivity <clears throat> dis- dissipating around Japan. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really, Japan was already prepared for that. The granularity of the official measuring stations really wasn't there to, to give you a, a good estimate on how much your life was in danger, let's say. Mm-hmm. Right? So they're very far, few and far between these official measuring stations. So some guys from the MIT, I think um, I call Scott Bonner and a bunch of other people put together these very quick um, Arduino sensors that measured uh, radiation. And they're very quick to make, uh, very... Um, and they could 
quickly get a lot of great, you know, they'll, they'll make hundreds of these. I don't know the actual number, but a lot of these. And so suddenly you could tell within a certain kind of accuracy whether within the next few days you need to, like, you know, move town or just not go into your backyard, you know? Yeah, fascinating. Um, so, it's, it's not, so it's not so much about, like, the government is acting against you. It's actually you, you might be able to amplify what the official measuring stations can do um, by using kind of some off-the-shelf technology with a, a little, a few hacks mm-hmm. um, to, to really do things that really do affect you. You know, it's not just technological novelty. It, you know, it's not, um, you know, Uber for selfies or something like that. It's not just some nonsense. It's uh, um, how, how can we really do something that improves our, our, our livelihood? Um, now, the making sense really came about because we study projects like this. The projects like these are still very few and far in between. Hmm. You know, we're in 2017. Um, and so we have uh, things like the European Union, for example, which funds making sense, uh, funding all of these projects about, um, you know, citizen observatories and things like that, where they, they see how they, they, they pilot technology and they see if it helps and all this kind of stuff. The reality is the adoption curve of these Internet of Things devices is not really promising. You know, it's like a like traditional, traditional bell curve, right? There's lots of hype and like, like a, an initial uptake and everyone's like super excited about it. And then it just kind of peters off very quickly yeah. and people get, kind of get disillusioned by it. You know, and imagine the millions that are going into funding projects like this from official sources and then also the amount of effort that other people put in their own side projects to do this kind of stuff. And to get that kind of return isn't that encouraging for the development of this movement. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, you know, there's an interesting gap here. Like, you know, what are what are the underlying mechanics, you know, for the kind of this sustained community engagement, right? How do we create these communities around technology that sustain themselves, that carry on going without the need for expert engineers or outside help? Mm-hmm. constantly push push them through the process yeah interesting um, and so yeah so that's a, that's a very long description <laughs> no no that's great that's that's really helpful i think um you know i mean it, it like this question around access and um you know the digital divide the ability for people to actually just um engage with the with the technology and and then the question around for what purpose? To me, it seems like, um, you know, the example that you gave of Fukushima, uh, the radiation example seems to be the one that people usually turn to. But, you know, in terms of how you've been exploring purpose with, with these communities, um, like, what, you know, what it can be used for and why, and how to build this grassroots um, approach to uh, to sensing environmental data, what are some other, what are some other purposes that, that, you know, cause can kind of, uh, or sorry, has kind of emerged, um, from the people that you've been talking with? Yeah. Um, okay. So that's a really good question. So the way, the way we are approaching making sense, um, before is, is starting not, not with, with the technology, starting with uh, a purpose, right? So we, we identify two types mm. of audience. We have an, um, a community of interest and a community of practice. 
um, which all makes a making sense community. So the community of interest being, let's say, concerned citizens with uh, perhaps they have uh, concerns about the pollution of their street, etc., and the community of um, practice, which let's say they're makers, they're people with the technological abilities. And so what we do is we go and find that community of interest. Um, we, we kind of scan the media, we scan like neighborhood associations, try to find out what are hot topics about, um, hmm. uh, you know, the environment in our, in our cities. Um, I feel like I should give just a little bit more context about making sense. So when I say cities, so making sense is a European funded project. Um, and we have a consortium of six partners. So one of us, one of them is our, ours in Barcelona, the Fabla Barcelona. Mm-hmm. We also work with uh, the VAG Society in Amsterdam, uh, the Peer Educator Network in Kosovo, um, the University of Dundee in Scotland, and the JRC, the Joint Research Commission in Brussels at the European Union. Um, and so we have uh, we have some brilliant um, scientists and researchers and engineers working on this. Um, and one of the, the lead project leads um, mentioned to you earlier, Mara Balestrini, published a paper in 2015 that uh, dealt with this. And she found these, this, this is great, this is my favorite kind of bit. It's the four main reasons um, why people uh, abandon projects like this. Yeah, no, interesting. And so, and so the, the, the four main reasons, the kind of the pillars of making sense of where, where, how we're tackling this. Hmm. Are um, well. First of all, there's there's a lack of technical skills, right? The technical barrier, the digital divide, is obviously the first thing, right? This technology is is very new. Um, it's prone to go wrong, um, and so a lot of people, when they get involved with this, they're not prepared for the technological issues that and the troubleshooting that might come along with it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know much about Arduino, about like you know downloading drivers from here and there, and so that that technical barrier is, is quite high. Everybody's so just used to an app on their iPhone exactly. or something like this. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is something that I, you know, I learned from my years in advertising is that you put a lot of, a lot of effort into the inner workings of a thing, you know, to make something for a website, for example, online. And if it doesn't work as smoothly as the native app on your phone, you know, something that Google and Apple have blown millions getting into, into production, you know, people judge it on that face value. They don't care that your thing is made with this technology or for this purpose. They care that it works or it looks as good this other thing that they have, mm-hmm. you know? And so when you, when, you, when you give someone something that just looks like a circuit board in a 3D printed shell, they're kind of looking at that and looking at their Sonos system or they're looking at something yeah. else and going, what, <laughs> what is this? Like, I, I don't have time for this. Um, you know, unless you're from a very specific kind of mentality where you're more of like a maker and a hacker and you love all these kind of wires and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, uh, so, so that's the first thing, like the, it's not, you know, plug and play. Um, and, you know, then the people that make it through that first gauntlet, first barrier, they have the issue of data accuracy and meaningfulness. Again, it's nascent technology. It's not, it's not something that has had millions into, you know, put into QA, QA, yeah, QA quality assurance and like uh, mm-hmm. calibration and stuff. Um, and these sensors fail and, you know, people can't also make sense of the data, the meaningfulness of this data, unless you're a statistician or a scientist, is, um, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of people, you know, when you, when your sensor says it's 72 nitrogen outside, like, you know what I mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Like, yeah. like can I go for a run? Can I not? What, what does that mean in the long term? Um, and so data meaningfulness is a big thing about these projects. 
I go out. You know, my my IoT device is suddenly like blinking yellow. Like, my am, am I safe? Um, and so, you know, things are made a lot of time for engineers that get what's going on in the behind the scenes of things, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. are communicated uh, meaningfully. And then there's also like the people that then get the data and like kind of can make sense of it. There's kind of a lack of purpose. You know, like a lot of times these technologies are made almost for the, the sake of making them and for the tech novelty aspect of it. Right. And they lack a, a wider purpose of doing this, right? So I've gone to the point of installing this, all the drivers, I can see the data that's emitting. It just kind of sits in the corner of the room, like flashing away, like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and so there's this lack of purpose. Eventually people just switch it off. They can't be bothered charging this thing every, every week or whatever. They're not really contributing to a wider purpose as far as they're aware. And then there's this also, finally, um, for the ones that do have a mission in mind and they've done all this stuff and they're getting all the data, the lack of social interaction is also a big downer. You know, people uh, will find more often that without others contributing to this shared vision or people to bounce ideas off or all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, you, you get discouraged. You know, it can be a very uh, singular, isolated kind of activity. Um, Hmm. Environment, environmental measuring, you know, um, unless you put together some kind of group when you make something out of it. So with making sense, we, we, we're trying to do this, right? We're trying to create a, you know, so now working backwards, we're trying to create a group or foster um, an existing group um, to, around the purpose perhaps they already have, right? They might already have a concern as a citizen about air or water pollution or radiation or something. Um, and then teach them the critical thinking behind um, data collection and measuring and data visualization and all this kind of stuff, mm. and then give them the tools, the technical skills to go out and do it. And so by hopefully addressing these kind of four pillars, we will figure out you know, these under, underlying mechanics, behaviors uh, that lead to the, the hopefully lead to more sustainable projects. Mm. And the idea, the idea for making sense is once we figure out all of these ways that a community the community gathers around projects and what are the best practices to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want to create a toolkit for other uh, communities of practice and interest to appropriate, to, you know, orchestrate their own citizen campaigns. You know, well after this project is gone, we can give you a, a manual for you to go and do this thing yourself. Um, and so this manual will really tell you how you can uh, you know, use open open design practices and collaborative interrogation, critical thinking, open hardware and software, digital fabrication, all this kind of stuff. To go and measure perhaps problems that we haven't thought of, right? Um, problems that are more personal to you. And so to do this, we are um, testing these methodologies in three cities. We're testing them in Barcelona, here with a fab lab, in Amsterdam with the VAG Society, and in Kosovo, um, in uh, with a pen is educated network and each place has identified um, issues that are uh, more pertinent to their environment to their, to their context so for example in Barcelona um, our pilots have centered around noise the big hot topic in Barcelona sound pollution a lot of tourism in Barcelona it's a very kind of hot spot for people to come and let loose and so the cities are also built in very narrow Kind of thing. So it really traps and bounces sound out. As a lot of outside drinking, the weather's really, really helps with that. You want to just hang out and drink beers outside. And so you can tell that into the early hours of the morning, there's people 
drinking and shouting, making noise, etc. So mm-hmm. neighborhood neighborhoods are just kind of really getting frustrated uh, and anxious about this. Hmm. Uh, in in Kosovo, for example, um, there's a big problem with air pollution. Um, there's this kind of a lot of fuel poverty. People burning, exporting good coal and burning cheap coal in the country. So it produces more smog and more smoke. The, the, the weather there traps a lot of this smog in. is terrible for, um, for your health. Mm-hmm. And then you have the problem, like, like I said before, in terms of the lack of trust in official measurements. Whereas you can see, like, the, you know, Kosovo very recently was in a conflict. They're not, like, in a state like Barcelona to... Um, dealing with these kind of environmental problems and so uh, at an official level these measurements are not really made transparent or publicized in a in a correct light you know they kind of find interesting ways around it for example put uh, environmental sensors up in the woods where perhaps there's less air pollution or they do stuff like that just so that their official measurements are skewed and in, in fact the american embassy in kosovo is now the source of the kind of accurate measurements, you know? And so, and so yeah. there's, there's this thing where, where the, the people of Costco said, wait a minute, like, why do we trust either of them? Why, you know, a man with two watches doesn't know the time. So like, why don't we yeah. <laughs> do, do, do some of this ourselves? And so Kosovo is focused all of their three pilots on air pollution and creating awareness around the air pollution that there is in Kosovo. Amsterdam has been really interesting because Amsterdam has, has done each pilot about a different thing. The first one was about air quality. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular street in Amsterdam. Um, that, so Amsterdam is made up of lots of canals. And there's mm-hmm. a, a particular street there that is kind of thoroughfare for like bigger boats, like big diesel boats that come across in and out of this canal, but also a, um, kind of a motorway into the city. So instead of being kind of local, like bicycle traffic, they get all of the kind of lorries and ferries that go in and out. So this particular street is a hot spot for air pollution. The local neighborhood association wants to measure that. Um, and so then they also did a really cool thing that we appropriated here in Barcelona, which is with kids, the Smart Kids Lab, the Fab Kids Lab, mm-hmm. uh, which was, uh, you know, teaching um, kids about sensing. So, um, you know, how do we go from, you know, biological sensing, the stuff that we have, right? Like our, our eyes, our, our hands, our ears, our taste, all that kind of stuff. So analog sensing, how can we make, you know, air pollution sensors out of Vaseline and some cardboard? Or how do we create, you know, the kind of science experiments? And then how do we create, cool. you know, where the digital gaps are? How do we add digital sensing in there? So using the sensors that we've been creating. Uh, and it's really funny because this is the first, I always used to, I always do, human-centered design and stuff like this, but this is the first time that we did bird-centered design. So we used uh, this kind of technology to create birdhouses that were more appropriate for specific species of birds with kids. I know, <laughs> awesome. I know, I know That's great. Temperature, temperature and all, heights and all this kind of stuff. So it's really good to get, um, you know, very, you know, we're talking like five to 16-year-olds maybe, uh, maybe younger, like 13-year-olds into, into citizen science. Mm-hmm. So, that was really good. And then the last one that um, the VAG is doing at the moment, which is kind of starting to pick up quite a lot of press, is their gamma radiation sensing. Um, so they've uh, read some academic papers. and They figured out that you can create a gamma radiation sensor using only your phone or your laptop. 
by uh, covering the camera on your laptop, uh, it can only pick up certain photons. Uh, someone's going to correct me on this science, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, is it is it photons? Sorry, I'm, I'm asking someone here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gamma particles. Right, so it's not they're not photons. All right, I totally got that wrong. It's like the gamma radiation particles uh, basically just pierce straight through the the blockage and they hit the camera sensor. And so you can tell by kind of like parts uh, inch or whatever how much gamma radiation there is near you. So what they're trying to do is an early warning system for uh, radiation, kind of like uh, SafeCast, right? Mm-hmm. You can do it with just tech technology that you do have rather than having to go to a fab lab and making something out of electronics and stuff. How and can I, I use my phone to do this? I think I saw your your blog posts on that. Um, and that, yeah. that was really interesting that, uh, yeah, that you could just use something that you already have by slightly modifying it. You, you turn it into a digital sensor, which is, um, you know, in that gradient that you gave between biological sensing, analog sensing and digital sensing, it seems like it's the digital sensing where there's, you know, really quite a gap in terms of our ability to, um, I guess, feel comfortable with, uh, with the tinkering required to, to pull that off. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that, that made me think about something that was, you know, I I think it's for, for me, at least this seems to be what's behind citizen science is this notion that, um, you know, you want to have a, you want to have accessibility for people to be able to, um, kind of, engage in scientific study and recording and and whatnot uh, for their own sake, for the sake of their understanding of their environment or or whatever the issue is that they're studying. And then B, it's also for kind of this bigger um, bigger effort. Maybe maybe you need to have multiple sensors out there for a particular issue and that then helps the city or the you know the local kind of provincial or state government or whatever respond better to something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about all of this is that we're really trying to fill in some gaps that we have in our ability to sense our environment in this new world, right? Where we have industrial pollutants and, um, you know, all of these kind of massive risks that, that stem from uh, just just kind of the techno-scientific world that we live in, that we mm-hmm. didn't biologically evolve to have any kind of, um, you know, sensory response to because, the, you know, that, that, that stuff just didn't exist as we, were, yep. as we were developing. So we can be harmed from these things like gamma radiation and whatnot. We don't know when it's in the air or when there's something in the water that we need to be aware of. So do you guys find that um, that a lot of the people that you encounter, uh, that their aha moment is one of, um, you know, hey, this, this, you know, kind of the world around me could hurt me and I need to have a better handle on that than what government is giving me? Or is it more the other side where it's just more of a constructive thing, like their aha moment is like, oh, I want to, I want to help my government or my city respond to this issue better. And so here's why it seems like there's a bit of a tension there between on the one hand being afraid and 
wanting to shield yourself from some danger of some sort. And then on the other hand, you know, maybe wanting to kind of contribute to this broader collective effort. Yeah. Um, it's a very, yeah, it's a, it's interesting. I think it does vary. I think I would say from the first, uh, kind of, for the most part, I think people, the, the, the problem they have with themselves first, and then they, they're not necessarily seeing it as an altruistic thing of mm-hmm. like helping the government do this, but they're like, if making the government aware that I know this will clear this, then I will do this. Um, Interesting. Then there's, yeah. other peop- then there's other people that um, they just want to be involved with citizen science. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so those are more the communities uh, of practice type people. Yeah. And so, for example, when we started the Making Sense pilots in Barcelona, we realized we didn't really have. Um, you know, community champions here. We didn't really have people that were really super engaged in citizen science or whatever. So we, what we did is we created a beta pilot in which we infrastructured a, a community of, of, you know, really ex- excited um, people to, to, come and, to come and learn about this whole kind of scene, right? Um, and these are people from all sorts of backgrounds, right? We're talking like teachers, policemen, we're talking about architects, and people that generally uh, would want to like be playing about with electronics or be playing about with um, with sensors and all this kind of stuff. And then from there, what we did is we kind of created, you know, in a good in a good sense, uh, kind of like a virus, like an infection. So like what we happened was when we went out to other communities, we had these kind of almost like evangelists that just were so excited about helping a community mm. solve their problems. Uh, um, you know, so there you have the two aha moments. You have one one set of people that just like wants to create almost in an altruistic point of view because they're not being paid for any of this. They just want to create cool technology that helps uh, people live better lives. Mm-hmm. Then you have other people that just, they just want to live a better life. And like they currently can't because things are happening in their neighborhood that stops them from whether it's air pollution or whether it's noise pollution. Um, and so the aha moments come in, in very different ways, but I think one of the biggest aha moments that we get isn't so much about, um, you know, this is citizen science or why I do it, but that I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one, that's one of the big things. We get so focused on the fact that we're already doing it that we forget that people, people often shy away from these kind of projects because, like I said, you know, that, that, that technological barrier is usually put so high that if you're not technologically inclined, and actually I've started this whole conversation by just talking about technology, and actually the reality is when you come to kind of making sense workshops, there's very little technology, right? Um, technology comes ve- at the very end of the process. Hmm. So we, we use um, a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of almost like service design methods, right? A lot of post-its, mm-hmm. a lot of Sharpies, a lot of things on walls and maps and and. And really lowering that barrier of entry mm-hmm. that anyone, irrespective of technological capabilities, can contribute. Because my right to contribute shouldn't be limited to how technologically versed I am. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm like, you know, if I'm an 80-year-old person living in a house uh, that is affected by noise pollution, my experience is just as valid, if not more, than someone that doesn't live in that neighborhood but knows how to code. Mm-hmm. You know, and so how do we create a platform in which anyone can contribute to, um, irrespective of their, of their backgrounds and skills and technological capabilities? Um, and and so that's been uh, one of the biggest kind of challenges of this. And like, how do we how do we perceive 
the idea of a community, right? Like a community isn't just people with homogenous kind of skill sets and stuff like this, right? A community is made up of lots of different kind of people, different backgrounds and ages, different abilities, different time that they can dedicate to a project, mm-hmm. different levels of interest. You can't all expect them to sit down for a weekend and start coding. You know, some people are going to want to do that for sure. Some people have, some people just want to share their experience and that will help the people that are coding do theirs or that'll help other people that are mapping out an issue, their thing. And so how do we, you know, structure these dynamics? And I think one of the biggest things, for example, that we, we do is because we map all of this kind of stuff out on paper for like 90% of the project, by the time they, they've done like deploy like a sensing strategy, they figure out what times of day they're going to measure, what the kind of stuff they're going to be looking for, all this kind of, you realize, wow, like I can do like 90% of a citizen science project myself. And I never thought I could do that. Mm. And so suddenly like out of, out of the back of these projects, we have all sorts of spin-offs, you know, participants are like, oh my God, my, my dad lives on this island in the south of Spain and they want to do this thing with da-da-da. I might take these methods and try it to that. And that to us is like the biggest kind of mm-hmm. success because if we can kind of infect you with this energy, with this, this um, methodology um, way of thinking, that they, all they have to know is to collaborate uh, and use this, this kind of structure to achieve things. They don't have to be a unicorn and know how to code and know how to publicize and how to do this. <laughs> You just have to put people around the project, around a certain structure. They can get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, and a big, a, yeah. yeah. I was just gonna say that that is like uh, kind of one of the narratives that that's come up on this show actually a few times. There's a few interesting uh, threads that <laughs> you've mentioned here that uh, I just want to touch on and then follow up with a question on. But um, you know, it's 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 fascinating. Yeah, just how much uh, a sense of efficacy you know, like impact can do for a community in terms of people just realizing that they, oh, I can, I can contribute to these technical problems or these things that I thought were just the domain of experts, you know? Um, so that on the one hand, and, and it's great to, to hear that that's, that that's one of the learnings that's coming up for you guys. Um, because I think so much of what's going on in the world today um, is aided by sharing the problem out with as many people as possible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. It just doesn't, uh, it doesn't do us any good to try and take full ownership over problems, whether we're in government or, or private sector or whatever. It just makes it so much easier for the community to rise up and blame you when things go wrong. And, and that doesn't, it's not productive. It doesn't do anything right. Um mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing, and then another thing that's interesting is uh, is just this dynamic between yeah that that kind of unicorn type technology that's out there where you got to have a a crazy big innovative idea and you're gonna your entrepreneurial organization is gonna be the one to pull it off and make all this money and wow look at look at how expert we are and how savvy and innovative and cutting edge we are versus this other type of science which is um, very much based in the fab lab, very much based in the maker space where people are coming together and they're tinkering with things and trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I make my Arduino do this thing over here and, and, and blah, blah, blah. And so do you think there's any, <laughs> is there, is there space for conversation between those two, those two, uh, I guess, you know, conceptions of, of tech as it relates to citizen science or, 
or do you feel like, you know, citizen science and makerspace and all this stuff, it's always going to be um, something that we're having to kind of struggle almost to create in the world uh, and struggle mm. to have people recognize and kind of valorize to the same degree that they recognize and valorize that, you know, Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs type narrative around tech. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, I, I, idealist in me says yes. I think people, I think uh, talented people should always talk to talented people and to non-talented people. So, you know, we should all, all be upskilling. Um, and I think once you start bringing business models and stuff into the mix, I think it gets a bit more complicated. Um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, there's pros and cons of Silicon Valley. I think a lot of the things that, and this also happens in, in uh, makers teams, by the way, but like it's often been accused of solutionism, right? Like mm -hmm. that whole, like, if any more soft, if you want to save the world, click here type, type vibe where, you know, they can fix these kind of wicked problems with lots of, with lots of mm -hmm. tied consequences to them, right? Um, and I think what happens out of, it's not necessarily the maker scene, but an approach that is co-creative is that you tend to create a much more holistic approach to something. You know, you can... I, but the way you frame a problem, where you frame an issue, you're more likely to achieve a, a solution, right? Rather than just trying to like do something and and then like you know fixing air pollution, you know, because it, it's never going to be like that. Whereas that's kind of what sells, right? Like when you when you go into Silicon Valley and you make these big grandiose statements about making the world a better place by doing this, mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of stuff you go, oh, I, I can buy into that. Mm -hmm. Like now the maker scene is perhaps a bit more realistic in terms of their thing. It was like, well, we're trying to kind of figure out how maybe, you know, and then suddenly that's like, ah, I'm not sure about that. That doesn't sound like it's going to work. I don't want to invest my, my, my time into something like this. And it's tough as well, because like you said, we're not, we're not equipped to understand a lot of these things biologically. Right. I, I don't know if the air pollution here is bad or good. I'm happily riding my bike down the street. And yeah. so I don't, <laughs> But I, but I can tell if something smells bad, for example, right? Or I can, you know, so things I can sense, I can become very motivated around. Whereas things I can't, there's a lot more work to be done in terms of like convincing people that this matters, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so it's tough. And so you can't really do that without some kind of hook, right? And, and I think the, by, by partnering with like the bigger brands or the, the kind of Silicon Valley kind of experts and stuff, I think we can... We can, we can learn a lot. I think we also have to keep our feet to the ground and not make promises that we can't keep. Not say this device will like completely do X, Y, and Z when in reality, the marketing gimmick and it won't. And so we're not, we're not in it for that. We're in it for like, you know, the, the long road of actually trying to see how by picking apart these little manageable problems, we can try to affect a, a larger issue. And so right? uh, maybe this will yeah. take me to another Another question I have here, um, and this is, uh, yeah, this is this is basically around the fact that the project is ending this year, right? Um, that it mm. is a that it is an EU funded project, and you kind of I think alluded to it earlier in our conversation when you said one of the end results is going to be a manual. Is like based on what you've studied and done, is a manual the best way to, um, I guess, scale this and spread it around, or? Are you guys exploring other methods to um, take kind of the learnings that you've that you've generated and and share that and and uh, help other communities do what you've done? 
Yeah, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really good question, very topical at the moment, because as the project is starting to, we're just starting to finalize all the pilots, we are having discussions exactly about this. Like, what is what form does this, I say manual in a, in a very kind of, uh, abstract way. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do we how do we put this together? Is it is is it literally a book that you go up and you read the recipes out of the book and you make something, or is it you know a repository on GitHub that you do this, or is it a website that a flowchart is it, you know like or is the actual manual people we create a making sense academy in which you go you learn these things and you go off and you you know like the same way that IDEO and consultancies have been doing this um, for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, had to create evangelists that can go out. And embed themselves into communities and 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 try things out. You know, we can leverage. You know, there's something like a thousand, over a thousand fab labs around the world, right? Anywhere from Nairobi to Medellin to Santiago wow. to everywhere. Wow. Right? There's a thousand of it. If you go on Fab Lab Fab Foundation or FabLabs.io, you hmm. see a big map with like thousands of these. So there's already a huge network that we can leverage mm-hmm. to scale this, right? Um, and so. There's something there. Is you're right. Like the discussion that we're having now is, what do we do? We know we have to do a toolkit. Mm-hmm. It's a set of, of resources. Like, but what are these resources? Are they like are they canvases? Right? Are they these sheets that we use in the workshops and we just put them up yeah. as PDFs and people can download them? But then how do we teach people how to use them? Um, and this is interesting because what we're doing, you know, it's it's not new, right? These are to- the kind of tools and methodologies that we're using are things that. Um, been around for ages in, in consultancies and things like that, right? We're talking about matrices and, and charts and like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, newspapers of the future and working your way back from that kind of, from the solution you want to have, <laughs> you know, th- things like, things like this, like uh, uh, things that help you establish empathy with other people. Right. Um, and so all we're doing is we're, we're taking this out of that of walled garden of consultancies where we're teaching all the secrets to people and saying, this is, this is how you do stuff in like paint by numbers. And this is what you do. I think that's really important as well, because it helps curve um, that solutionist thing. Now, mm-hmm. obviously it takes time to teach people this, right? Um, but they're, they're, they're easy exercises to make. Like one of them, for example, uh, when we wanted to explain to people about uh, how to tackle noise pollution, for example, uh, we created this exercise, which was like, uh, a linear, just a, a timeline of a day, given day, and people were asked to kind of put uh, some post-it notes. We we, we cut up uh, hundreds of like little pieces of paper with diagrams on it, like little icons. They could put in like little dogs barking or trash collection, all this kind of stuff. And mm. some of them totally abstract, so they can make up whatever they want. But across the day, they'll go, oh, seven o'clock, this happens. Eight o'clock, this happens. A bunch of noises that annoy them. And then they were meant to say, on the same timeline after they've done that, all the noises of the day themselves make. But then they went around and then kind of put all the noises they make. Hmm. And then they, they kind of labeled which noise are good, what's difference between a noise and a sound. And then there was interesting discussions that said, for example, some people have a neighbor that has this dog that doesn't stop barking. Mm-hmm. It's like, like terrible for them. But someone else in the same group has a dog. And the best thing about their day is when they come back from work and their dog is happy to see them and it's barking <laughs> and it's kind of... You know I mean? And so... You have to understand to say so suddenly, like, say, oh, we're going to stop, like, all dogs from bark. It's like, well, actually, you're you're cutting into someone else's happiness there. What is? How do you approach? Uh, you know, sound is is difficult as well because it's a socially acceptable pollutant almost, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's fun to go out to a nightclub and like, you know, blare 
play music out. It's fun to be outside drinking. You know, what, what would happen to Barcelona if you banned all of outside drinking? You know, you'd kill the vibe of a city. Um, and so suddenly you'd, you'd have much bigger impact on tourism and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it's, it's a wicked problem. You can't just go in there and say, blah. So what we try to do with these kind of methods is to help people think about issues, not as binary things that are right or wrong and that can be solved or not solved, is about framing specific parts of issues that they perhaps can do. Or, for example, in the uh, thing that we did in Plaza del Sol in Gracia, there was a particular thing where people were outside drinking well into the early hours of the morning. Um, you know, it used to be a public space that got overtaken by bars and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, a lot of illicit, you know, you're technically not allowed to be buying beers on the street and drinking them outside if you're not at a bar, like an esplanade or something like that. Yeah, people do this, and it's kind of tolerated. The neighbors kind of, they, they used the uh, making sense approach. They measured day in, day out, uh, nighttime, daytime, first floor, last floor, all this kind of stuff, and created really compelling data. They also um, basically told them that on norm, uh, you know, it was well above the norm. And that's the first thing, for example. A lot of these people didn't know that there was a, a limit found. Suddenly, it's not about... Uh, killing off sound is about saying, hey, legally there is a, a norm here that we have to abide by and you're not abiding by. Maybe we can start by just abiding the law mm-hmm. and like you're not you're not allowed to make that level of noise between this hour and this hour, but you're allowed some noise or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then and then the that particular pilot culminated with very interesting um, activity. So we did a public intervention that was like a series of open discussion tables in that square where the residents invited people to discuss a better use of the square, a use that could benefit both people that wanted just to hang out and people that live there, that the kids could actually come out and play without having to step on beer bottles. You know, like, how do we reimagine together the future of that square rather than mandate it from one side to the other, right? And this is all done with, like, these kind of co-creation tools without, mm-hmm. you know, sensors help us get to that discussion because then we can back up our discussion, but they're not the thing. So... Back, back to your question of how do we how do we follow this up? And I think a lot of this can be done in a manual in terms of how to read this recipe, but we are currently doing this with environmental sensing, but the idea is that it's broad enough that you can do it for any kind of activity that you want to orchestrate in this sense, you know, gathering a community around an issue and getting data and moving from, you know, awareness to action. That's, that's the, the making sense process is moving from sensing into awareness, making sense of that data, and finally into action. Whereas a lot of projects end up in awareness, like, oh, now we know mm-hmm. this. Yeah, but what, what, do we, what do we do with that? Yeah, what do we do? And that, that, is, that is contextual, you know? That has to do with, I can't say that if we wrote a hard manual to say, this is how you do it, mm-hmm. you'd be writing it from a very biased a European perspective that wouldn't work at all in the States or in South America or Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We, the the current discussions that are happening now is really, you're right, how is this of use to people? How might people use this in a way that um, kind of makes sense to them? You know, because like I said, the whole theme of this is we're not dictating uh, what we do. We facilitate most of the time on making sense where we're facilitators. Interesting. Um, And so like that, that, that's really interesting to hear. Are you able to kind of give me a high level walkthrough of, of your facilitation process that you take yeah um so yeah for sure let's say for example a a given any given project we um 
we start off with a participatory planning, right? So we map out the community commons. So who are the people we have access to? What what are they willing to contribute? You know, are they willing to contribute time? Are they willing to contribute technological skills or resources? Perhaps someone has space. Uh, we also map out um, where they are kind of on a map. So we do these things with like sticker dots on big maps and stuff. Um, and then we start to kind of unpack the issue a bit, like what is it What is it that we're looking to tackle? So like this is a participatory planning. We kind of set mm. some kind of ambitions, all this kind of stuff. Then we do um, what we call community-level indicators. So we, we set out indicators um, so that our sense of deployment is actionable. What are, we, what, are we, what are we really looking for here? Are we, for example, looking to reduce the amount of noise at night? Or are we looking to lower noise in apartments and homes? We, we set very clear things. We don't just go, oh, we want to tackle noise. We, mm-hmm. we set out a community perspective. What, do they, what, what is the change that they want to see? Again, we don't come in with a change that we want to see for our own agenda. This is them. This is like they have an interest in this. What do they want to see? And then we figure out what indicators get, get there, right? For example, we can say that um, street traffic uh, might be a good indicator of how much noise there's going to be or uh, the number of attendants at different bars might be something, you know. Um, and, then, and then from that, we can start to figure out, okay, well, if we're looking for number of attendants, what kind of sensors do we need? We probably need some kind of cameras or something. We need to photograph people. We need someone out there with a clipboard. Um, you know, so we, from this, we start to kind of put together a strategy of like, how might we capture this data that we want to capture? Mm-hmm. Um, then, then we kind of, um, well, then we do essentially a uh, technological onboarding. We kind of tool up, essentially. We, we have some sensors or we, what we don't have, we figure out how to make. We go to the Fab Lab and we do that. The, ones, the people that are interested in helping us make that, we teach them how to do it. The ones that aren't, they just get their sensor when it's time to deploy it. Mm-hmm. We, do, um, we do kind of a deployment. So while that's doing that thing, we have data literacy workshops. So we teach people what the data that they're going to be getting from the sensor is, right? Um, for example, one of the big things that we ourselves found out was that when we're creating noise pollution things, um, we measure um, um, uh, noise in our sensors in uh, dBA. I think it's dBA. Uh, a second. Um, which basically... So there's two ways of measuring sound. There's dBA and um, dBC. Hmm. One of these sound um, units measuring decibels attenuates the sound. Right? So what it does, it measures kind of um, more higher frequency sound, which means like all these loud noises that you can hear, you kind of go like, okay, so that's, that's the official measuring station. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas our sensors measure, I think it's DBC. What DBC does is measure the full spectrum of sound from low to high. So for example, a good, a good example of this is when you walk into a room that nobody's there and it's quiet, and then after a while, somebody turns off the air conditioning. And then, like, the whole room goes really silent, right? Like, all this time, you'd been exposed to, like, low-frequency uh, sound, but high-pressure high sound, right? Mm. It can actually cause a lot of stress to the human ear. But Interesting. You, you, the, the, the official sensors don't measure that, mm-hmm. right? So, so, actually, a big cause of sound pollution, if you really look at it, is industrial air conditioning units. Mm. But... Socially, what we expect is tourists making noise outside. 
that, that might cause as much stress as the industrial um, air conditioning units right uh, right outside your window. Yeah, just that um, continual so, background. So, exactly. And your, your brain is very good at attenuating these sounds of like blocking them out. Mm-hmm. It kind of is res- good at pattern recognition. So it picks up the ones that are like irregular, like loud sounds every now and again that those that disturb you. But these constant sh- sounds, uh, it block them out. So we, 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 we have kind of lots of workshops about this. We also have lots of workshops about visualization uh, of data. You know, like how do we get people that aren't, I don't know, artistic or technological to pick up a pen and really unpack the idea of sound, you know, into shapes mm-hmm. and into, you know, we do things like data postcards. We do use acetate over graphs to like help them spot patterns, like things that are very kind of, you know, you can do in a school very easily. Um, and then also, but very important, we talk about the governance of data. Um, you know, who owns this data? What can it be used for? What cannot? Like if I'm devoting my time and my electricity and my house and my, essentially, you know, my, my life putting these, making these, these data sets, what are the kind of rights that I want to associate with this data? Hmm. How do I want it to be used? Because as well, like you've got to be careful because data can become, come back to haunt you, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you prove that your street is really, really noisy, that can suddenly affect your house price. Yes, right? that, can, right. that can suddenly affect a lot of things that you didn't expect it to affect. So, I mean, who has access to this is an important question to have. We do a lot of these data data workshops, not not so much about statistics of data, but really the inner workings of data that everyone can understand. Then we go once we once we get the data, we make sense of it. Uh, we do um, we now move from awareness to action. So we do co-creation methodologies, right? So we do, uh, for example, the newspaper of the future in which we figure out what we want to have happen in two months or two years or whatever, and then we work our way back. To, like, how might we create that? It might be, for example, a public intervention or it might be a policy change or something, and we figure out who do we have to put in a room together, what kind of conditions have to happen. We do these kind of group things in common. A lot of the stuff that we've done, just I guess through the sheer interest of the Fab Labs and stuff, has ended up in some sort of fabrication. But then we also have fabrication workshops in mm-hmm. we, where we develop maker skills through the Fab Lab network. Uh, we get the communities of practice to teach the communities of interest. And we create, for example, one of the things that we created was a thing called the Noise Box in Barcelona, which was this uh, just a big, a big wooden box with a big button inside and some LED strips running out of it. When you press the button, it measured the current sound in real time and lit up some, an LED strip. Um, and on the ground, it was marked what the level was legally and how much above or below that level it was, but also what are the medical implications of the sound being at that level. Interesting. And so, and so it helped people very quickly that don't want to look at big graphs of data, see a bunch of shining lights, mm-hmm. see the fact that at, that at that level, for a long time, it might create um, kind of some ear deficiencies or it might create vertigo or it might create you know, a lot of this kind of different things, uh, insomnia, etc., um, and so, you know, how do we how do we broaden the awareness? Just that group that took part in the pilot, the outside world, because there's no point keeping that just within those four walls. So, how do how do we do that? But also important is when we deploy this, how do we do it in a way that fosters a dialogue, right? So that other people want to get involved, like not necessarily want to get involved, but that they also become aware of the findings that we've done. Like when you when you look at official sensors out there in a the wild, usually kind of hidden behind these big gray boxes, right? The official measuring stations, they're just these like 
big square boxes or hidden away mm-hmm. up in like a, a gutter of a building. They look quite, again, they look quite Orwellian, right? They look quite surve- like surveillance yeah, yeah. Data measuring you. But they, they're not looking for you to ask any questions about this. They kind of, they try to blend into the environment, yeah. like kind of <laughs> measuring you. And, and that's a shame because that also then, in a sense, kind of creates this, this idea that like, oh, I shouldn't be asking questions about this stuff. Like they're clearly not wanting me to, so I'm not going to bother. Uh, and that, that's, that's a shame because there's a lot of questions to be asked about this kind of stuff. And so by creating installations that actively invite dialogue and participation, you're, you're starting to create a discussion. You might not be solving anything right off the bat. You might spark something that you wouldn't have otherwise if you just deployed an anonymous sensor somewhere and then published this on a largely forgettable website somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, by, by putting this in the public domain, you actually invite um, the conversation. So our, our process of that is going from uh, scoping to uh, uh, sensing to data sense making and then to an action. Hmm. Um, and also, and also, I, I feel that the action has been a uh, very, you know, it's been a key part of all the stuff that we've done because it also offers a sense of not completion but one way around the loop. You know, so you've done one one loop, and then you can now do another. Now you take what you've done in the action, you take your learnings, you analyze them, you unpack the issues that you found, and you go through the process again. You Absolutely. you map it out again, you figure out the data, and, da, 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 and you do a new action. So that's that's kind of the the, the, the rough making sense process. That's um, that's great. I mean, I think it's I think it's just uh, it's fascinating to hear that uh, you know on the on the surface it seems like oh this is kind of like a a, a technological thing and uh, I wonder if I can engage with it, but really what what your guys's practice is all about is about kind of facilitating adult education opportunities mm-hmm. around around these tools and how to use them and not only just how to use them, but how to, uh, how to, how to take some ownership and to have some efficacy and how, how they're designed and built. And like, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's more fulsome than just, um, here's a product or here's a, here's an approach or a thing. Uh, this is how you use it. will help you with any troubleshooting issues you have. It's more, you know, it's, it's much more involved and engaged. And in that sense, um, uh, just totally fascinating, and, and you know, yeah. I, I'm noticing now that our that our time is almost up, Gee. So, I, I feel like before before I let you go, I wanna I wanna ask a few kind of rapid round questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Um. Just yeah, yeah. just just to learn a little bit more about kind of what makes you guys makes you guys tick, so to speak. So, uh. You know, one that one that I always like asking people, just because I am a bit of a book nerd, is, um, you know, what what's what's kind of the most influential uh, thing to read or or digest in this space, um, or or not even influential for you. I mean, it could be something that you guys have written that you feel is very is very good, and it's a good guidance material or something like this. Um, so, what mm. what's influenced you guys the most in that regard? Ooh. I, I can't speak for the whole team, <laughs> but uh, I think the beauty about this is we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think a general a series of books that you'll often hear mentioned um, at different points. You will have um, the Penguin and Leviathan. Let me just get this right. Penguin um, and the Leviathan by mm-hmm. Johai Benkler. 
Um, so you also have the Hackers Manifesto. Um, you have things like, like I mentioned earlier, Benny Morosov's, uh, if you want to save the world, click here. So things that really help you talk about the commons, for example, that's, that's a big theme, and I'm sure you're aware of that through the reshare and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. how, how, do we, how do we create solutions using the power of all of us? You know, so that's something also that Penguin and the Leviathan talks about. How do we, how do we use the power of the small to, to tackle the big? But then when you pair that with, like, for example, uh, Benny Morisov's book, is also how do we keep a reality check on this that we're not just, like, pretending to come up with solutions for everything yeah. <laughs> um, that are untenable, right? <clears throat> so I think that those, those types of books, there's, there's many others. Actually, I can give you a very, a very interesting bibliography that we used to put together the, the uh, Making Sense proposal. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, but, uh, the, put it in the, the show kind notes. Of the, fa- uh, the foundational books. Uh, a lot of a lot of the organizers read. You know the um, I forget the one I forget is um, I think uh, Eleanor Nostrom. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna. Yeah, uh, no, I know her. The tragedy yeah. of the Commons is the uh, <laughs> I forget the name of the book. I'm so bad with this kind of stuff. I think it's uh, um, governing the Commons or something like that. I I'm familiar with that book too. It's it's great. Yeah, yeah, and so and so that's that's the thing. I think with what we're doing, the commons is such an important thing because it's what we said before. It's not about being like a, a one-man army uh, going off. Is is how how can we unlock a lot of this open resource that's out there to mm-hmm. to achieve something good? Fascinating. So, yeah, and in in terms of your uh, your process, the facilitation tools that you guys use. I mean, is is there anything that you want to point to there, or do you want to just kind of point to the future manual, or you know, manual and put in quotes, whatever that whatever that ends up being, or do you have something that you're kind of working from that that's informed a lot of that? No, I mean, um, so a lot of the stuff that we use, um, we have uh, appropriated very kindly uh, from. Uh, so I, I said before. Uh, the one of the project leads on this project is uh, Mara, Mara Balestrini. Mm-hmm. She has a, consultant, a consultancy called Ideas for Change, um, who have been kind of very good at, and very open about sharing a lot of their methodologies um, mm-hmm. to, to, map, to map commons and to, to help push a project forward, because that's the hardest thing when you have so many cooks in a pot, how do we move this project forward? So, and Ideas for Change does a lot of know open source business models uh you know exponential growth so suddenly we've used all of her knowledge in that area hmm. and applied it to the citizen science thing see can we make can we really make uh, a community of citizen science grow like we would a business um and so we do that we also use things like a liz sanders um who does a lot of uh co-creation um kind of co-creation methods hmm. she's a she's um like a, an American, uh, an American lady, she does make make tools. Okay. Um, which is great. Uh, like how how do we get how do we extrapolate the design process, expand it beyond a single person? How can multiple people come in and really create a considered holistic design solution? And finally, I think the other person is um, she made the convivial toolbox. Uh, Lucy Kimball, I think. Mm. Um, so from Lucy Kimball, we've also got, um, I know, wait, the Toolbox is um, Liz Sanders. Um, 
Sikimbo has an amazing book with lots of lots of really good recipes, which in a way we're kind of thinking, well, maybe we could structure the Making Sense manual around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's like the service design toolkit, mm-hmm. um, I think it's called. And what it what it has in there is like for different types of challenge, is like an exercise sheet that helps you tackle that challenge. Fascinating. Um, so that's definitely a good one to read if you're into service design or you're into problem solving in general. Okay. Well, I'll look into that. Um, and I'll definitely put it in the show notes as well. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm totally uh, aware of your time and I know that you're probably quite busy with a lot of things. So I don't want to keep you for, for any much longer. Was there anything else you wanted to kind of say or, or plug or, or point people to before we wrap yeah, up? Yeah, I guess, I guess, just, just super quickly. One of the exa- like the biggest learnings that we've had from this. Mm-hmm. Um, to leave on that and give you an example for this that I probably should have given at the very beginning. Um, you'll see, you'll see a pattern emerging here because I'm going to refer to again one of Mara Alestrini's pieces of work in this field, uh, which is a bit that got me really excited about this type of project. Which is the the key learning is that um, you know th- this this is 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 really tough to. Like um, orchestrating all of this kind of stuff is, is is really tough. And so the work that we're doing is built on previous work. And so this is one of those pieces. But the biggest thing that you have to take into account is that you have to start with an issue. You can't start with technology alone mm-hmm. and hope that, that something is going to come out of it. Um, you apply the, the technology to the issue. And the, the best example for this was that um, Ara did some work in Bristol in England with a... Um, a group called the KWMC, Knowles West Media Center, uh, that looked at to use uh, Internet of Things initiatives to better the city. And so what Mara's approach, again, coming from the bottom up, was to go to talk to the people there and figure out what kind of stuff was pertinent to their lives, rather than impose like, oh, a smart bike system or something. Mm-hmm. She go in there and figure out what do people there actually <laughs> need. And she found out that um, people had a big problem with, with humidity. Mm. Uh, you know, Bristol's by a delta, so a lot of houses get damp. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, after a bit of research, you realize that damp is actually a good indicator of poverty as well. Because when you when you have damp, you have health issues. You're in hospital a lot. You might be missing work a lot. Mm-hmm. You perhaps can't afford to fix your house. With rising house prices and demand, landlords are going rogue, right? So landlords don't care about fixing the house because if you don't want to live there, they get someone else to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a big problem about damp in Bristol. And at the same time as she was developing that, I was walking around the Smart City Expo in Barcelona and I saw everything. I saw smart trash collection. I saw ways to monitor street traffic, the, the fridge that's connected to the internet again, all that kind of stuff. I didn't see a single thing about damp. No one was talking about damp. It just isn't sexy enough. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't really resonate. Yeah. And yet what, what Mara did is she she and the an Ideas for Change and the, the group there created these um, little centers that are like frogs. They co-created it. You know, they talked to the community and said, oh, if you're going to have a center in your house, what would it be like? I thought it was like a frog, you know, something not intimidating like electronics, you know. Mm-hmm. They created these little centers that measure humidity in this place. Um, and now when they measure that humidity, if the, what, what they ended up doing is creating a microeconomy. They, they, the people that have the sensors create a commons of data. Now, that commons of data can be used by the government and local council to keep track on houses that are deteriorating, keep track of uh, mm. health problems, keep track of how to plan a better city, how to build a better city based on 
damp data and how the, the spread of it. They can also keep a track on rogue landlords. But now rogue landlords have an excuse to fix the houses because otherwise the government's going to come down on them because they're coming down on rogue landlords. Mm. And what the government suddenly says, it says, look, if we give you, if, you, if you're a landlord and you use this frog, we can give you some kind of subsidy to use on uh, a plumber or a contractor to come in and fix this stuff. I mean, so now you facilitate mm-hmm. uh, landlords to come and fix the problem. So everybody wins. The people that live there get houses, hopefully without damp. The landlords get, don't get into trouble. And actually their houses hopefully go up in price more. The government gets open data about how to better manage a city. And plumbers suddenly have a new source of contracts because they've, they've created access to this. And that came across... I came across not by thinking what cool technology can we implement mm-hmm. in the city, but by going to the bottom up and saying, hey, like, what, what is really happening here and how can we measure it and what happens when we do? And then you have yourself a very interesting proposition, which is you can then go to a council and say, hey, how much do you pay out of the National Health Service to address problems due to respiratory problems, due to damp or due to whatever? Um, and if I could tell you, you could save a fraction of that by implementing a citizen science program like this, da da da, da would you invest it? Mm-hmm. You know, and suddenly, suddenly you have you have there a very interesting economic model, um, and I think that's that's the future. When we talked about like whether we talk to Silicon Valley or whether we talk to this, I think first and foremost we have to talk to people. We have mm-hmm. to like make sure that the the things that we're looking to address are worth addressing. Yes. And so who are we addressing these things for? And so start with that issue, and then you're much more likely to have your uh, technology uh, take off. Fascinating. That's a great that's learning. That's probably how I would leave this. Yeah, no, that's a great learning to share. Um, just really grounded in what people are actually, what what they're needing, right? I, I hope you guys, uh, I hope you guys continue on with your work after after the EU project is done and and that the manual spreads like wildfire through the world, uh, whatever yep. the manual ends up looking like and being like. Um, and, uh, and yes, thank you. Thank you. All right. We look forward to, uh, to seeing this live. Okay. All right. Take care, Stefan. Yeah, you too, Guy. No. 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 You can find the resources mentioned no. during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. 